Welcome to Farmside Today, our regular podcast about what's happening in pharmaceutical science, hosted by Professor Gina Martini, Chief Scientist of the Royal Pharmaceutical Society. Visit www.orpharms.com forward slash podcast for more Farmside Today and other podcasts. You can help us support the work of pharmacists by joining. Membership is just 60p a day. And now over to you, Gino. My name is Gino Martini. I'm the Chief Scientist for the Royal Pharmaceutical Society. Today I'm joined with my colleague, Sir Cahill, the Chief Pharmaceutical Officer's Clinical Research Fellow. And I'm delighted today that we're joined by Dave Tudor, who's one of the Managing Directors for the Centre of Process Innovation, or CPI. Good morning, Sarah, and good morning, Dave. How are you all? Morning, Gino. Morning, Gino. I'm well, thank you. Dave, I'm delighted you've come to join us today and talk a bit about the CPI. Could you give our listeners a flavour of who you are, your background, and what you do at CPI? Certainly. So, yeah, Dave Tudor, I'm the I'm the managing director of the Medicines Manufacturing Innovation Centre, the Biologic Centre in Darlington, and for quality within CPI. I effectively look after the pharmaceutical side of CPI. I come from a pharmaceutical background. I've spent 29 years now in the farm industry working for a large farm, and I joined CPI about 15 months ago. So, Dave, can you give us a background to the history of CPI, and more importantly, what CPI actually does? So, CPI is uh, is 15 years old. It does what it says on the tin. It's it, it's part of the high value manufacturing catapult within the UK infrastructure, uh, and it services processing sectors. And what it's trying to do is to work with both academics and industrial companies to develop and translate technology in the processing areas. And we have expertise and speciality in electronics, photonics, biotechnology, formulation, biologics and small molecules in the pharmaceutical sector. And what kind of projects do you do work on, Dave? Is there anything you can share with our listeners? Yeah, the projects can be wide and varied in terms of their size and duration. And uh, we tend to work in uh, either a, a large collaborative project or just a kind of one-to-one private project with a company. And we, we're really trying to work at the forefront of science where we can help companies to access grant funding if they need to. And we have, you know, we have over 500 people in CPI, all with a scientific and engineering background. Uh, and we use that as an opportunity to really translate technology and develop technology. And that's what our mission is as part of the, the UK infrastructure. We we see ourselves as trying to grow the UK's reputation and brand and its manufacturing capability through the application of advanced technology. So basically you work with academics who may have a, a good idea or you may actually work with industry or in fact link the two together. Is that kind of the idea behind CPI? You're absolutely spot on. Because of the, the wide breadth that we have, we can identify partners and bring people together into collaboration. And we tend to find that we can work with multiple academics on the same project with multiple small industry working together to solve a problem. And that brings a real dynamic, responsive flavour to the type of projects that we can do. We can do them quickly. Uh, we can do them efficiently as a result of that collaboration. Sarah? Morning, Dave. So um, my question is, what has been the CPI's response to the COVID-19 pandemic? Yeah, well, listen, we've been heavily involved. Uh, so right at the very start, we were supporting the ventilator challenge. Some of our centres have been involved in supporting the, the testing a strategy that the UK uh, obviously tried to undertake. And in some places, we've been supporting PPE programmes. 
But more recently, we're, we're heavily involved in supporting the, the vaccines response. And in particular, uh, we've been working alongside Imperial uh, University to look at the RNA vaccine that, that has been announced. So that's been our, our main focus, but it's been a an interesting four or five months for us. We, we found that our skills and our infrastructure and our technology has had quite a wide application in supporting many of the different programmes that have come out of this COVID crisis. And you've, you've just touched on it there with the vaccine. And as we're all aware, the whole world is looking for a treatment or a cure right now. Can you give us any sense of what's happening in the UK right now? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think the UK strategy is very clear. I mean, the, the UK government has established a vaccines task force led by Kate Bingham. And I think the strategy is very, very clear that the first part of that is to find a vaccine, is to find a treatment that can uh, stop the dreadful impact that this particular virus is having on human health and uh, in terms of the society and the economy. And then linked to that, the second priority is to, to consider what the legacy for the country would be. So really asking the question, are we using this opportunity to build a future legacy so that a response to this sort of thing in the future can be even better than it is today? But just to expand a little bit further, I think the vaccine strategy, as you can see unfold, I think I'm right saying there's been six announcements so far. And what the UK government are doing is a, it's what I would call a bundling strategy of different vaccines. These vaccines have got different signs behind them. So I think they're spreading the risk or, or I should say increasing the likelihood of at least finding one, perhaps two vaccines that will have a response as quickly as we possibly can. I wasn't aware of kind of that strategy that they were taking forward in terms of the bundling of vaccines to make sure that something does work. I'll hand you back over to Gino now. Thanks, Dave. It's a very important point that I've so made. This bundling strategy, clearly, it wasn't made very clear or it's not that clear that's happening, but actually quite reassuring. Actually quite common sense with a flu vaccine. There are more than one provider of flu vaccines because, you know, people respond in different ways. And obviously we now have the, the Russians have launched the vaccine, Sputnik, and there's obviously some hesitation, or at least some questions raised about how safe the vaccine is and kind of testing's been done. What's your view on that? I think every country's doing the same thing. How, how quickly can you bring forward a vaccine and obviously respond to this situation as quick as possible? And, you know, it, it's a question that's on everyone's lips just now, is how quick will a vaccine get here? I can't talk about the specifics of the, the vaccine in Russia, but I do think it's very important to make a couple of points here is that going faster in the farm industry doesn't mean so you can break the rules or cut corners. You have to make sure that any vaccine has got its safety profile and it shows the right efficacy. And I think that's a really important message, you know, to make here. Um, so I can't talk on specifics, but I, I do know that there are a sequence of steps that definitely need to take place for vaccines to come through. And I think within the UK, I think the UK is going at a very good pace. So if you look at the example of, if I can, the Oxford vaccine in the partnership with AstraZeneca, that's a great example of uh, UK science from Oxford University that's been developed at breakneck speed in a very safe way and very quickly partnering with a large partner like AstraZeneca, they're able to talk about billions of doses for the general population very, very quickly. So I think that's a great example, you know, where you can go with pace, but you have to do things in the right proper sequence. Yeah, I agree. And I think we need to really understand the great impact that vaccines have had on human life and healthcare throughout the world. And I agree, you know, we need to look at this, do things in the right way 
and to me that we need to understand how important vaccines really really are and so i'll be embracing the vaccine if it comes available and i'm eligible and i'll certainly be taking it well thank you dave for that interesting update on the vaccines development but dave are we doing anything else with other medicines like monoclonal antibodies for example yeah, Gino, you're absolutely right. So, I mean, we know that there are a certain percentage of the population that can't take vaccines. So the UK is uh, um, establishing and driving a monoclonal antibody strategy. And that's going to be a combination of purchase of monoclonal antibodies from commercial organisations. And they are looking at some of the UK signs um, to deliver that as well. So, yes, over and above the vaccine strategy that I mentioned, they are looking at monoclonal antibodies. So COVID-19 is forcing the research community to rethink how it does things. What's changed and what lessons can we learn from this, both from CPI and kind of on a worldwide perspective? I think there are three things that jump out to me, Sarah, just now, is that I have been absolutely amazed about some of the advanced science. So we've been talking about advanced therapies as part of the UK life sciences strategy for quite a few years now. But when you look at some of the advanced technologies and the new types of vaccines that have been developed. So, you know, if you, if you take a step back and you look at the imperial vaccine and this RNA technology, the, the very, very low dose in this vaccine, if that technology becomes successful, could transform the whole manufacturing and supply strategy for how we bring vaccines to the general population in the future. So there are some very exciting bits of science and I think sometimes we underplay this, but the UK is at the forefront of advanced science globally. Some of the research that we are doing is, is, is quite incredible. And this crisis has given a platform for that science to be accelerated and become more visible in, in a much quicker way. So I think that's one thing that I would say. The second thing is that collaboration, we're seeing collaboration everywhere we look just now. So drug companies or pharmaceutical companies working together. So you can see all these partnerships like Pfizer and BioNTech and GSK and Zenofi. Everyone is looking to partner and bring the different skills and expertise they've got to accelerate a solution, which I think is incredibly encouraging if you're a patient and you're looking for the, that response to the COVID crisis. And it's not just about the pharma companies. We're seeing government agencies like uh, the, the UK regulator, MHRA, the academics, everyone trying to pull together and creating what I would call this triple helix effect of academics, government and industry working together to provide uh, a solution. Uh, and then the last thing I would say is just the whole pace and momentum. So, you know, if, if you look at the typical process of bringing a medicine to market, I think it's fair to say the industry can sometimes get criticised for it takes so long. I mean, it can take up to eight years, even longer in some cases, for a medicine from time of discovery to get into a patient. And I think what this crisis has done is asked us to, to challenge some of those timelines. And can we go a little bit faster? But at the same time, going back to our previous point, not breaking the rules, not reducing the safety or efficacy of the drug coming through. So I think that's a real learning for us. And I would hope, and, and, and I really do hope that, that when this crisis is over, that we can take those collaboration learnings and those momentum learnings into how we normally do business in the pharmaceutical industry. Thank you. That's really interesting. That is kind of what one of the most powerful things, I suppose, is that working together with a shared goal or vision actually can get things done a bit quicker when collaboration is involved. Dave, I totally agree. The UK has some of the best life sciences organisations uh, in the world. Our universities are first class. 
our NHS, our clinical resources are first class. And I think, you know, we are really showing how we are at the forefront of innovation. So I'm a great believer in that. And I think the simple free word thing that's come out of this, collaborate, collaborate, collaborate. Combine that with open innovation, open information, and many things can happen. I personally would love to see this continue. I'm a great believer of different thinking, diversified thinking, cross-fertilization, fluid boundaries between academia and industry. And I think if you do that and we really embrace that, that we will continue to be the forefront of innovation. I really do. And organizations like CPI, I think, will make it happen. You know, you're that concierge service, aren't you? You're the glue, you're the link that brings those various bodies together. You must be incredibly proud to be working with CPI. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's been a great move in my career. I'm, I'm really enjoying it. Just it, when you're working with, um, you know, 500 scientists who are just want, are driven to make change happen, you end up being a very positive, uh, you know, working environment and, and space. I firmly agree with what uh, you're saying in terms of the role of CPI and the catapult and its wider sense where, uh, you know, they, they can be the glue that, that they just kind of moves and gels the process forward. That That is that is the role that CPI can play. We, we are there as a not-for-profit organisation to advance technology working with collaborative partners. And it's a, it's a hugely exciting uh, space that we work in today. Very envious, Dave. So we've asked this question a lot of all our interviewees, and it's about reinvestment back in the UK. I remember very clearly when Professor Sarah Gilbert at uh, Oxford said, I've got a pile of plans, but I haven't got a manufacturing plan. Of course, they are building one, and now there's that investment in Braintree and Essex, where things will be built. I suppose the question is, are we going to see more reinvestment back in the UK, more manufacturing sites, more development sites? And also... Linked to that is something that I've just become aware of in, in the recent weeks is the whole thing called Project Defend. I think the two are interrelated. Could you give me your views on the reinvestment and also on Project Defend and what you think about them? I mentioned the vaccines task force strategy was, you know, first of all, find a treatment and preferably from a UK supply. And secondly, what's the legacy that's going to be left behind? And we're already seeing some fantastic decisions unfold, aren't we, on legacy? So the increased investment in the vaccines manufacturing centre down near Oxford, I think, is a fantastic example of that. Where we're moving that innovation centre, not just from you know, innovating technology, but actually putting manufacturing capacity in there that allows a UK capability for the future so that we can respond even quicker. Very similar to that is the, the expansion of the cell and gene therapy capability. So we have the catapult in Stevenage and we've got this new facility that's been purchased in Braintree to create cell and gene therapy manufacturing capability. Coupled with that, there's a significant investment in around advanced therapy skills. So we're seeing the task force not just have one eye on today, but they're looking to the future in terms of infrastructure. And I think if you paint this picture of the, the vaccine centre, the cell and gene therapy centre, there's a biologic centre in Darlington, there's a formulation in Sedgefield, medicines manufacturing in Glasgow, the small molecule. This infrastructure that's been built today and over the last few years gives the UK a unique capability that I don't think any other country's got. And these innovation centres can help to translate technology. And you mentioned Project Defend. So there's more than just putting infrastructure in, but Project Defend is looking at where were those supply chain risk issues for the UK, I think. And you know, if we look at access to PPE and access to testing, we're already seeing some decisions being made about creating UK capability. I read last week about the, the large 
contract for PPE supply to the NHS in Scotland being announced. So we're seeing the government looking at that supply chain security question, which I think is the ethos of what Project Defend is. And personally, uh, you know, I'm involved in one of those projects, which is looking at some of the generic drugs in the UK. I mean, there have been quite a large number of drug shortages as a result of the COVID-19 crisis. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, how do we mitigate that going forward? And there is a team uh, led by Professor Clyde Badman that is looking at that very question. Are there some of these medicines that we need to consider reshoring back into the UK just to make sure that we don't have supply shortages in the future. And I think that's a great exam question for us to consider because if you can apply some of the new advanced technology thinking to some of these old medicines, not only can you secure the supply chain, but you could transform the cost profile of that medicine. That's quite an exciting proposition, yeah? Oh, I totally agree. There was, wasn't there, a trend to offshore, i.e. outsource, move some of the older drugs to be made, you know, in, in developing countries for low cost, like India and China. But now insuring is reversing that process for those critical drugs. Is that correct? I think for what I would call the high value medicines, the complex chemistry and the complex formulations, we are starting to see a small trend towards insuring or reshoring back into the UK. And I think that is driven by supply chain costs. We're seeing the UK with the patent box having a different taxation strategy, which was something that was launched seven or eight years ago. And we're seeing that begin to play through now. And then from an advanced technology and engineering capability, the, the UK isn't just good at science, it's very good at engineering. And some of the cross-sectorial engineering solutions coming into the farm industry are looking very exciting. And so as a result of those three things, we are seeing, I think, a, a trend, albeit a slow trend at the moment, towards bringing medicines back. It's been a really fascinating interview, actually, and it's left me very positive on the outlook uh, for the UK with uh, you know, reinvestment, Project Defend, organisations like CPI, and where you've obviously helped respond to the pandemic. Dave, um, on behalf of the Royal Pharmaceutical Society, I thank you so much for your generosity, your time to come and be interviewed. Thank you for your hard work. On behalf of the Royal Pharmaceutical Society, thank you so much. Gino, thank you. Thanks for joining us at Farmside today. We regularly add new chats with interesting and important figures at www.orfarms.com forward slash podcast. So check back again soon to keep up with the latest in pharmacy and pharmaceutical science. And remember, RPS membership costs just 60p a day. Find out more at www.orfarms.com forward slash RPS membership.